Hi, I'm Steve, and I'm an engineer. And I'm Mac, a history teacher. Welcome to Civics on the Rocks, the once-a-month podcast out of Texas. In this podcast, we, along with our producer Anne, Hello. Talk about politics, history, and science. And science fiction. We're also drinking. Yes, lots of drinking and bad jokes. Not distasteful, just poor quality. Okay, let's get started. The question of the day, what are our primary concerns? (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we start with what's a primary? Okay. So I think our producer's making a play on the word of primary, referring to the... Which threw us off. Yeah. We we had to catch up. So we were talking about, I believe, primary elections, the ones in which the parties select their candidates to go forward to the general election. And what role, what are they? And good, bad, have they changed over time? Yeah, so here's here's a little bit of history about primaries. They're, they, they've been around for a while. They've been around for over 100 years. But all of the states doing primaries, and by the way, it's I'm going to be saying all of the states doing primaries, but it's not. It's Iowa still does a caucus, but that doesn't really matter. Essentially, it's all the states do primaries. Are they the only caucus? They're the only one. Do they so keep it just to be different? For, yes, I mean, straight up. So sure. it's like, oh, no, the Iowa caucus is so important. No, it's not. I, I mean, I'm not to... saying that Iowa's not important, but it's not really that important politically. I hate to derail you so early in the episode. What's the difference between a caucus and a primary? Sure. Okay, so a caucus is a political meeting. And there are, in, in American history, there's a number of things that you could call caucuses, including early on in our in our history the through the administrations of of Washington Adams Jefferson and so on up to Jackson um, how did the parties choose their or how did the party because at some point the federalists sort of die off because they shot themselves in the foot a couple of different ways how did the democratic republicans choose who their candidates were going to be in different elections and it was in caucuses of party leaders they would just sort of decide who who was going to be running. But it's a period of time, and this is a period of time, kids, that you may remember from your U.S. history class called the Era of Good Feelings, where there's basically just one party. It's the Democratic-Republicans. Monroe is basically unopposed. But then we get to the election of 1824, where it's Jackson versus John Quincy Adams. And not to turn this into a history lesson, things go bad there for the party, and it splits and those that follow Jackson become the Democrats. Despite the fact that he had really, really awesome facial hair. Jackson? No, Quincy Adams. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jackson didn't have any facial No, no, no. Yeah. Quincy Adams had like those awesome Oh, no, he had yeah. huge, yeah. yeah. Impressive. Um, and then the, the followers of not Jackson became the National Republicans, or we know them as Whigs. Um, but what happened around that time was rather than just these caucuses the party started using conventions where more people could show up at the local levels, local conventions, and participate in in the process. Um, Going with the whole populist kind of Jackson yeah. feel. Yeah, and, and originally it was more democratic. So both parties start using it, and when the Republicans get created in the 1850s, they you know use conventions too. Um, I don't remember exactly when the first primary started, like late 1800s, early 1900s. It was seen as even more democratic because you just have people vote for who they want the party's nominee to be. Um, But as recently as the 60s, like in 1968, I think only 12, 13, 14 states had primaries. The rest were still doing conventions. And it was like state conventions, heavily influenced by state party leaders, who were deciding who their delegates were going to vote for to be the party's nominee at the convention. In 1968, and this is actually kind of crucial for if we're talking about primaries. Well, footnote here, this moment. So when you're talking about conventions, though, you're talking about a convention which is not like our current conventions, which no, are basically just spectacle. They are because every state now has primaries, and so the primary election determines who the delegates from that state are going to vote for in their national convention. Okay. okay. Um, but, so, 1968, Hubert Humphrey does not, for the Democratic nomination, he doesn't enter his name into any of the primary races, including California. 
he just goes around to the states that are just relying on conventions. Why? Because Hubert Humphrey has been an elected Democrat since the 1930s. He knows all of these guys. And he goes around to make sure that they, well, I say make sure, but to, to you know, persuade them to send delegates from their state to the convention that are going to vote for Humphrey. Um, and so that was as recently as that, in part because of what happened with the Democrats in 68, and I'm going to say in part because of what happened to the Republicans in 64, there was a commission that was set up with recommendations about how to fix the process, et cetera, et cetera. And so in the 1970s, both parties decide we're just doing primaries in all of the states. Except Iowa. Except Iowa. Okay. And so, but that only dates from the early 70s. So through most of American, through four-fifths of American history, you know, you, you didn't have every state with a primary. You had a few here and there. In fact, there were some elections where some states, like, would have a primary. Their, their party would do, uh, whether it was Democrats or Republicans, would do a primary in this election and the next election. They just went back to relying on the conventions and the delegates, and then they would, they would go back and forth. And it really was only since the 70s that it's like, nope, we're just going to rely on primary votes. So, to summarize that, we really have only had primaries for the last 50 years. Yeah. It's not like it's a permanent institution. It's actually relatively recent. It is, but following the recommendations of that that commission, both parties decided, no, we're committing to doing primaries. So I guess the next question is, is that an improvement? Well, it was seen as being more democratic to have more people participate in the process and to encourage more participation. But the thing is, turnout in primary elections historically has been strikingly low. And the other thing is there is a, um, a theory, a concern, that those people who do, who are energized enough to vote in their party's primary, that for the Democrats, they tend to be people who are a little further to the left, and for the Republicans, they tend to be the people who are a little further to the right. A little further to the right? Uh, that's what I'm going with. Okay. Um, and so the wackadoodles. Yeah, and, and so they end up nominating candidates that are a little further away from the middle. And you you could also say this that back when it was more or less under the control of state party leaders and you know who the delegates were going to vote for in the convention that even though yes that's elitist it it sort of acted as a speed break on the wackadoodles. Which, the flip side, usually see it abbreviated in popular media as that was the bad, smoke-filled back room Absolutely. era. But in that smoke-filled back room, the guys were making the decisions, and it was all guys back then. Yeah. Usually yeah. had their eyes on the general elections. They were trying to pick a candidate they felt who would fare well in the general. Yeah. And I think... As, what a, I, as opposed to now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, is now it's, you have to win the primary vote and the primary vote is the bunch of wackadoodles because the problem is only 7% or whatever the people show up and it's, it's, well, it's the ones it's like 20%, but it's still. the ones who give a damn and the ones who give a damn who are motivated to show up or are, are the more extreme yeah. version. So you get this, this skew in the people elected via the primaries which distorts the field by the time you actually get to the, See, the thing selection. Of, the thing about the theory is, though, is like, okay, let's look in 20th century at the people who got their party's nomination back when it was primarily conventions versus those that got the nomination when it was primarily primaries. And it's like, you know, Joe Biden is not a radical leftist. He's no, always No, he been, is not. He's always... <laughs> <laughs> He has always been a centrist Democrat. You know, he, he was a senator from Delaware since, I think, before we were born, you know, and for the longest oh, yeah. time, senior senator from Delaware. And no senator from Delaware, even if they're a Democrat, is going to be a radical leftist. <laughs> and, and, well, and we can we can talk about how that's because yeah, corporations be and the Vermont. state laws that are yeah. favorable to the corporations. But anyway, um, and even so in Bill Clinton, there were things that he supported and ideas that he had that... You know, you could say, okay, well, that, that's a very liberal idea. But he ends up being a fairly... In fact, I mean, how, how many Republicans are there out there in the 2000s that said that would joke that, oh, Bill Clinton was one of the best Republican presidents because for his own survival after the 
disaster for the Democrats in the off-year elections in 94, where they lose control of the House for the first time in 40 years, um, Clinton basically finds those things that the Republicans are in favor of that he can be in favor of, and he takes those and runs with them and makes them his things. Um, so, Yeah, like policing. And welfare reform. Three strikes and you're out. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and a number, well, in the Defense of Marriage Act, which even at the time I'm like, Okay, I haven't been to law yeah. school yet, but even I can think of a few different ways that this is unconstitutional. And eventually it was, mm-hmm. you know. So th- this occurred to me while you were talking. Um, does having primaries take power out of the state politicians' hands? Because I would imagine if they're having caucuses and they're the ones really making the decision about who's going up... They, they have more power than if they're just trying to appeal to their base within the state. Right. Well, I think there's an interesting distortion there, though, because if, if you're... Distortion or distinction? No, distortion. <laughs> uh, because I haven't had the third cocktail yet. <laughs> okay. No, it's, if, if you're talking about, you know, on, on the surface, you've got the old version where just the one or two party bosses in the state pick the nominee. Yeah. Okay. That, that's just a couple of guys picking the thing and that's it. And this other version of primaries, in theory, is so open and democratic, it, it does reduce the power of the bosses because it, it's open to ev- everybody who's registered whatever or even open in its open primaries. However, it goes back to that lack of voter participation. Right. Because it's a lack of voter participation, there's such a small group that turns out, the people who want to have influence, whether they're the party bosses or somebody with money, can simply spend their money strategically on the people who are going to show up for the primary. Right. And so, suddenly, if you can target a very small group, and so it doesn't take a lot to target them, and suddenly you have major influence over the primary process. So where you could argue that you do see that the result of having primaries everywhere, except Iowa, <laughs> is that you have more you know, extreme you know, positions of the parties, not necessarily that it always happens in the presidential, presidential candidates, although obviously... You know, we can say that it, it has recently. Um, but state party leaders themselves, state elected officials, because the, these people who are running for their state House of Representatives, state Senate, or the U.S. Congress or whatever, like, they're all on the ballot for primaries as well. And when we're talking about, yes, there's low voter turnout, but, you know, the flip side is that you've got this dedicated small minority, and those people... And, and it may be a little, the dynamic may work a little different from state to state, but I'm going to go ahead and say in Texas that the the dedicated small minority that come out in, oh, I don't know, say the, the Republican primaries, I mean, they, they know who they are and the state party leaders know who they are and they're very dedicated and very motivated to come out. Um, and the people they vote for in the primaries... You know, they know who, they're not just, oh, I'm, I'm just going to vote for the, the primary candidate for president or senator or in the off-year elections for us governor. No, they know who to vote for because a lot of these people have been delegates at their local conventions, state conventions, whatever. They know who they're voting for. They know the right people to vote for in, in the primary. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why there there are so there's so many concerns right now within the Republican Party about certain people in danger of getting primaried this year. And it's because you do have these factions within the Republican Party who are really good at motivating people to get out to vote or those or they're all, you know, part of the same, you know, mm-hmm. people are motivated anyway. Um, but where they, they know who the right people are to vote for and that's where you find the more extreme you know mm-hmm. and and you know and the even for the democrats in some states i mean we don't necessarily see it in texas because to be quite frank the democratic party has been like a non-entity in texas and not just because of popularity among republicans among the minority of texans that actually get out and vote in primaries and off-year elections but the leadership of the democratic party in this state is just not they're not it's like they rolled over. Competent? Yeah. yeah. Um, but in other states where the Democratic Party is more, you know, uh, active and effective, you know, you may also have um, state um, 
you know, state representatives, state senators who are Democrats who are perhaps a little more to the left. Well, and, and to, to bring it out of the abstract, I had an interesting example that I was taken aback by. I don't know why. Um, I was working with a, uh, with a county several years ago with the commissioners, and I would attend commissioner's court meetings occasionally. Um, we may need some words of explanation about the whole, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the administrative body, elected administrative body of the county in the area, let's put it that way. And they, uh, they had a seat that was vacated, and so they had the primary election. In this particular county, Republicans pretty much always won the general election. So there was a, there was a guy who won the primary, the Republican primary, and the other commissioners basically vote, nominated him to fill the remaining period of that commissioner's term. You know, because A, they needed to nominate somebody, and frankly, because he won the Republican primary, he was 99% sure going to win the general anyway. Okay. Might as well get him started early. So, not wrong, but it's kind of one of those that highlights that fact. You know, if, if, if you've got it that locked down, once you've won the primary, you've won the election, yeah. and it doesn't really matter who you are. Well, okay. So, let's say young people of the nation wanted to get rid of all the old white guys. Um, like if they organize, just, just, just to be clear, when you say get rid of, you mean like vote out of power? Yes, of course. Oh, okay, yes. Just checking. Just checking. No. Um, but like, seriously, if, if, yeah, at least right say, now under the first cocktail, but let's say theoretically someone's really frustrated with the current governmental system and vote. they vote, get out and well, vote. No, but yes, this is yes. what I'm saying yeah. is like, so if they really wanted to impact mm -hmm. through voting, would the primaries be the time to get really organized? Yes. yes. And get a mass of people yes. into ballot, to get well, out and ballot. And, and look, let's put this way: you're you're going out in a presidential election, and half of America voting eligible Americans are going out to vote in a presidential election. So you're one of the sixty million, hundred million, whatever that number is, that are going to go vote. Um, your voice is there, but your voice is with you know a hundred million of your closest friends. Um, you're out in a primary locally. That's the 20% of the people in your state that are voting. So it massively amplifies your voice if you participate in those. And this is true not even just in the primaries, and even the off years. The off year election participation is low. Look at the turnout for, you know, those May city elections on bonds. You get 7% turnout. Right. Yeah. Um, and one you of the reasons you can win with fifty thousand votes. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 and you or and a couple less. dozen of your friends could change the outcome in those kind of elections if you actually cared enough to get out and vote. That's a starting point. Yeah. See, and in some states, I mean, it's it's going to be a little different in different states because, like, right now, tech well, not right now. Texas is a one-party state. Mm -hmm. For the longest time, we were a one-party state, and it was the Democratic Party. And then there was a transition period of a couple of decades, and now we're a one-party state with a Republican Party. And for those of you that may not know, the last time a Democrat held a statewide office in Texas, Bill Clinton was president. We're talking like 25 years ago. So in a primary in Texas where like only 20% or less of the people get out and vote, I mean, you can really make a difference uh, in a primary. And that is, I mean, there, there's just opportunities there. But I think a lot of people focus on presidential elections i mean voter turnout is always way higher in presidential elections and it's like if you really want to make change start local start start with your city start with your county start with your state mm -hmm. and and the thing that that sort of highlights for me and this has been a theme i've i've become aware of in the last five years or so is people coming up with things like oh we're getting extreme candidates we need to go away from primaries or we need to change the system this way or we should have ranked choice voting or we should have blah, blah, blah. And, and not that those are inherently bad ideas. Some of them I think are actually good ones. Some ranked them, choice voting? Ranked choice. Oh. Yeah. Ranked choice voting. And there's, there's a couple of versions of that you can do. And I think they're actually kind of neat and I think they should be explored. But they're trying to use that to solve the problem of like more extreme candidates when the root problem of more extreme candidates is people don't go out to vote. Yeah. They're trying to solve the fundamental problem of lack of voter engagement and participation by changing the system. And I think you're better off increasing voter participation. You know, when you have a small portion who are going to primaries or bond elections, you get skewed outcomes because nobody's there. If everybody shows up to vote, 
you get a much more representative outcome and frankly more moderate candidates and policies. Well, and so let's let's so big picture thing here. So if primaries are the cause of the, the parties taking more extreme positions as opposed to when it was primarily state party leaders in, in conventions, that the solution is not necessarily, well, let's just go back to conventions and we're just going to have to trust the state party leaders. Um, it's, no, we need more people participating. We need not just the more extreme elements of either party or any party. Mm-hmm participating like people need to be active and both parties for a while were were pretty active in trying to do like voter registration drives and and get out the vote before you had one candidate in particular who thought it would be in his best interest to be able to say in any given election that it's rigged so that if he ends up losing he can say see i told you so yeah that's a very good approach to have on the front end if you have a fragile ego to say that it's rigged or if you're a jackass well it's the interesting thing on it's sort of like when you have completely unrelated conspiracy theories you're able to twist anything to say oh if something comes out that supports your theory ooh, i was right it supports my theory something comes out that doesn't support your theory ooh, i'm right that's disinformation by the man or whatever you know same thing here if you say it was rigged if there's a conspiracy against you and you lose, well, it wasn't your fault. It was the conspiracy. It was right. the rigged election. The judge is part yeah. of it. Yeah, but if you won, well, look, I overcame the rigged election to win. Yeah. So it's this, it's people sad. like that can go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so have we have primaries upcoming, coming fast. We do. Texas's primary is Tuesday, March fifth. Um. 2024. Oh, and fun, totally worthless fact about primaries. Keep in mind, primaries are not state elections. They're actually basically club elections for these private organizations we call parties that happen to be administered by the state. There are still election laws that are going to apply even if it's a primary election. But I mean, just one of those, it it, it it looks and feels like an actual election, and really it's just this club. There was a Supreme Court case... um, originated in texas and i'm gonna get it wrong i want to say it was like texas versus white which is kind of ironic but it it was (laughs) well because it was the democratic party had white primaries it it would they did not allow because because of the idea that well this is just a party election this is not an actual governmental election Uh, so we don't need to follow the 15th amendment or anything we don't want to follow you're kidding So, so just the white folk i don't know why i'm surprised by this Oh yeah, no. That Texas. Well, and Texas wasn't the only state that had white primaries, and it was the Democratic Party because that was the party right, that was, yeah, at the time was, was yeah. hey, if we can turn back the clock. Sure. Um, Southern yep. Democrats. Yes, and well, and Old some Midwestern, and well, anyway. Yeah. But um, well, let's call them Southern, and that'll be our euphemism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but. And this is maybe me having grown up in the South, but I get very annoyed at the whole, because there's this long-standing, oh, the South is all racist and the rest of the country is fine. No. That's true. All of the country has been racist yes. at some point yeah. or another. Yes, yes. And because usually, of whites from the South migrating after the Civil well, War. And, and okay, whites not the, just that, I know. But. And, and whites in the North finding a good way to make a buck. Well, well so, and the whites coming into a country that was already populated by indigenous people and saying no 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 we can fix this yeah fix yeah in all sorts of different ways and then we thought of better ways to fix it and it was just like no this is still falling under the definition so we all agree racism is rampant in our country yes so moving on white primaries so there there was a supreme court case that said and and i don't know i don't remember for a fact if it was texas versus white but it was a texas case where they said that you can't do that and it was in part because mm-hmm. Texas was effectively a one-party state where the real election was the Democratic primary. Yeah. You know, when people talk about the, what was it, the 1948 election for senator that LBJ wins because, you know, there were dead people in Duval County that voted for him. That was not the general election. Well, that was the Democratic that kind of primary. Appeal, I mean, that's what's going to happen. Well, you know. Johnson was very charismatic. You know, he was. Cocktail break. Okay, so we we sort of hit upon a theme 
we, we were going to do champagne-based cocktails, and we, we, we thought, hey, well, French 75 and then also champagne cocktail. And so we also thought, oh, wait, those are two drinks from the movie Casablanca. We thought? Did yeah, we think that? Well, okay, I, I thought that. Our resident so, movie historian. And <laughs> cocktail aficionado, which, well... Yeah. No, I I appreciate it. I think it's awesome. I'm on board. But I'm just want to give credit where credit's due. Thank. Well, I appreciate that. So I thought, you know, why don't we just say let's do the drinks that are in Casablanca? I mean, except for the wine that they occasionally have. So there's French 75s. There's champagne cocktails that Victor Laszlo orders on another occasion. He orders two coin trows, please. And then there's, of course, the scene where uh, Rick Blaine is, is drinking bourbon well into the night. So that's going to be our four. Um, so we started off with French 75 and then graduated to a champagne cocktail. French 75 was invented around, was during World War One, and I believe it was an American flyer that was flying with the French. And a French 75 is basically an ounce and a half to two ounces of gin and then lemon juice and sugar, simple syrup, and then you fill up the flute with champagne. And it's named after a cannon. I mean, it goes down very, yeah, it goes down very smooth, and you can have way too many of them before you realize you should not move anywhere. And and the gin we used is Plymouth gin, which is a a very good gin. Mm -hmm. And to clarify, uh, we did not use champagne champagne. We used a sparkling vintage from California, Corbel. And not an official out of Champagne, France, Champagne. But also, for the record, we're not technically under jurisdiction of the European Union. So, well, I I respect the laws about alcohol. So, and cheese, because I I believe Parmesan can't be called Parmesan unless it's from a a certain region of of Italy. I'm a big fan of alcohol laws, but more because of their window into the history of alcohol. So, okay, but yeah, I take your point. Yeah, so it's it's uh, so that's a, a good cocktail and a champagne cocktail. I always thought it was simply like you take a sugar cube and and you souse it in bitters, um, and then just fill up the the coupe or the flute. I prefer a coupe with champagne, um, but I've also seen recipes where it says you you um, you put in some cognac. And by the way, so French seventy five there there is a version out there that will use cognac instead of gin, and and it's pretty good. But it's also sort of been retconned, like people saying, "Oh, originally it was cognac, and then the you know the British made it gin." It's like, no, originally it was gin. Um, but yeah, champagne cocktail is just you know a sugar cube soused in bitters, and then you fill up the coupe with uh, champagne. And it was su- surprisingly good. It w- it's well, simple. It, one of the things that was interesting about it is it, even though you've got all this stuff going on in it with the champagne and the gin and and the lemon juice. None of that comes out as really strong. No, it's all right. very well balanced and mild. It's it's so it's very drinkable and therefore back to the yeah it knocks you on your ass. Before it, you yeah, no, you yeah. have to like do not have more than two. Yeah, French seventy fives are very nice in the summertime. Oh yeah, I can see that. Sure. I mean, and, I mean, it, but it's it's named after a cannon for a reason. So mm. what, the seventy five millimeter? millimeter yeah. Okay. See, pretty... I thought it was a year. I was like, oh no, it was a cannon. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, after this, it's not really cocktails. We'll just have a little bit of Cointreau and then some bourbon separately. Separately. Yeah, yeah not together. So the Casablanca flight? Oh, yeah. Well, so we, instead of calling it the Casablanca flight, it would be more fitting to call it the Lisbon flight. Ah. Uh-huh. So you don't you get that joke. Yeah, you it, have to go watch the movie. Go watch the all credit for all of this goes goes to Mac over there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I always enjoy any Casablanca references. So. I love Casablanca. One of the all-time best movies. Yeah, I, it really is. Now it's time for what's that over there? Squirrel. Yeah. So, um, over, over my Thanksgiving break, I, I read a few books, but one of them by Annie Jacobson was called The Pentagon's Brain, and it came out in 2015, so it is a little dated, but it's about the history of DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, which originally started life just as ARPA, Advanced Research Project Agency. From and, which so many wonderful things. 
yeah, including the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's about their history of the one of the whole reasons why they existed was because post World War II, uh, the United States government was like, we should never be caught off guard like we were in Pearl Harbor. And so it was about being prepared for you know, Soviet attack, being prepared for whatever, where we would not be caught off guard, and, um, and how their mission sort of changed during Vietnam and then changed again later. Uh, and it's, it's a fascinating uh, look at the advanced technologies that ARPA and then DARPA um, were involved with. Um, some not entirely ethical, in fact, not ethical at all, but others incredibly fascinating with the technology that's available. And she also mentions the Jasons, um, which are a private group of scientists that, that consult for different government. Now they consult for different government agencies. And does usually... Jason stand for something? No, it actually, some people think it does because they usually met in the summer. So like it was, oh, this stands for like the months of whatever. It's like, no, because they actually meet during the summer, not the fall. But it was the one of the, the lead scientists that founded them. They were trying to think of a name and the name the government gave them was Project Sunrise. And the scientist's wife thought that's a terrible name. Yeah. And suggested Jason, the the Greek hero, Jason and the the Argonauts, thinking whatever. And so the the name just stuck. And they, for a while, they worked, um, I don't know, I don't remember how they were. It's like they, they contracted out with the government, but it was usually the government contracted with somebody else who contracted with the Jasons. And so right now the Jasons are contracted through the MITRE Corporation, M-I-T-R-E. With that, that's another company with an interesting history. So, but it, but it's like cutting edge of science. They sound like a James Bond evil corporation. Well, I'm just gonna put it no, out. No, sure. I mean, but but it is it is fascinating the stuff that they work on. There's a lot of stuff stuff related to drones, um, stuff related to surveillance, stuff related to stuff that goes up into space. Stuff that I mean, that's cutting edge stuff that they like. The Jasons may have first you know, realize, okay, this is actually, did the math, this is possible, and like, here's how you can do it. And then it gets done, and, and DARPA a lot of times was part of the getting it done. So, I'll throw out two items. One is a, is a brief old one, which I was recently reminded of, because I got a, one of the Andy Weir books, but I was reminded of The Martian, which, fun film. Yeah. But the book is so much more fun, even. And if you haven't read the book, even if you've seen the film, read the book. It's great. It's just awesome. And best PR character ever. She's, she's a delight. But the big one more relevant to us was I was reading The uh, Bill of Obligations by Richard Haas. Mm. Haas. Haas. Which um, is a really nice book. It's actually a very quick read. It's pretty, pretty thin. Um, it doesn't... It has a nice approach to things and the idea being that people... I shouldn't say too much, but... There's no, you should. Go ahead, Chair. Well, I don't want to limit what he, the way he presents it. He doesn't present it just as a counterpoint to the idea of it's all about rights. Right. But that is part of the framing. Um, the people have been focused about their rights, how the government can't infringe on their rights kind of things, or right, rights focus, which is, which is true. There's a Bill of Rights, which is where he got the title, obviously, Bill of Obligations. But the idea being that, yeah, that's all well and good, but the corollary of that is as a citizen, you have certain obligations to make in this case, democracy, but really a healthy society run. And he works through each of them. And they're not, I mean, there's 10 of them because you got to have 10. Um, but it's pretty short on each one. You know, he, and it's really some interesting ideas and perspectives. And if you haven't thought about some of them, you know, it's things like nonviolence, being civil, participating in democracy, yeah, being educated and informed. Um, but it frames it that way is, look, you know, there are obligations of citizens to keep society working. And these are things you really need to do as a citizen to keep everything moving. So that actually important. sounds fascinating. It, yeah. It's a really, really nice thing. Some of these, it, if you've run to these before, some of these are like, well, duh. But he flushes it out nicely. Yeah. One of the interesting ones on nonviolence, which he only spends like a sentence or two on, and I wish he delved into more. He, he mentions the whole idea that, which I've seen in other books, of one of the 
founding ideas of being in a civilization in a society is that you kind of the government has a near monopoly on the use of force. Yeah. That we're not supposed to go beating each other up anymore yeah. because we don't have the government to do it for us. We yeah. told the government they could beat us yes. up for yeah. it. Yes, yeah. basically. But he points out, though, that that is really premised on the idea that the government will use reasonable restraint in the use of force. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't drill down on that one, but that's a very ripe area for. I guess that would be its own book. Yeah. So, yeah. but that's it's kind of the. I think you, it you, has been its own. You book. find he he pulls these ten threads, and they're all really neat. And any one of these threads, you could you know go wild with. So, yeah. but it's a really neat kind of summary. Pulling those together as as themes. So. Well, and it's it makes me think. I want to go back to what I was saying about the how the founding fathers viewed the people. Another aspect to it about the checks and balances in the Constitution, because. If you're thinking, okay, checks and balances are there as a result of kind of like troubleshooting. You know, what if you have the worst people in in the House or the Senate or the, you know, what if this happens? Okay. The ultimate check in so many different ways is the people. Mm -hmm. You know, like, for example, the House has the power of impeachment. Now, yes, the trial of impeachment is in the Senate. But if you have a situation where, I don't know, like Andrew Jackson in the Trail of Tears where the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cherokee Nation, and Andrew Jackson said famously, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Arguably, that is something that should should have gotten his ass impeached. Yes. But except that everybody in the Congress was pretty much in favor of, of Indian removal. So, but, and that that was, they could they could be that way without fear of any kind of reprisal because many of the white Americans who were the voters we're also in favor of it too but if white male americans just to be totally fair but yeah landowning yes, americans land, well at that point i think they'd gotten large at, at that point a lot of them had gotten away a lot of the states had gotten away from the landowning requirement i believe okay they did eventually in the early 1800s by that point i don't know if if all of them had yet but but if for example white guys got a white guy if Oh, old white men you know my feelings um and, well and let's be fair there's some young white assholes too but um really they're old in their soul well okay well yeah so if somebody calls you an old soul that may not be a yeah <laughs> um but if most of the country thinks oh this president should have been impeached and the house doesn't do it you know, we can vote out those representatives and vote in people. In fact, that's the only way that that's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Unless the country just doesn't well, think the president and, should and, be impeached. And frankly, the, when, when the representative does or doesn't decide to vote to impeach, one of the things they have an eye on is whether or not they're going to get reelected for that vote. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's they're, they're aware of that. Last call. So we're drinking bourbon. Well, talk about what we drank before the bourbon. So we we did hit, well, we were going to do... Continuing the Lisbon flight. Yes, continuing the Lisbon flight is going to be Cointro. And all of us decided that, wow, straight Cointro. I mean, if, if we were going to perhaps have it in a little coupe or something as an aperitif before we ate a lot of food, that'd be fine. But no, I, no, I didn't general, agree to that. The <laughs> response was oof. Yeah. Oof. Was, I believe, yes, that's accurate. I mean, oof. It's, it's just a liqueur, but it's pretty, wow. For um, one thing, you can taste the sugar. Like, there were yeah. grains of sugar in that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that may have been from the... No, no, anyway. No, it's so just, there's a lot of sugar. We in all that. chose different ways to attempt to cut it a little, to lessen the impact of the Cointreau. I put gin in it. it what else did you put in it, and, you well, madman? Okay, man. but hold on. So first, I got, first. I got ridiculed for saying, hey, we should put gin in this to sort of tone it down. Okay, I thought and, it might have actually but, been reasonable. But you I thought, didn't. yeah, it wasn't entirely bad with, with the gin in it. But then I thought, but you know, man. this needs a little something else. And I'm like, why not add a little bit of Campari? Which I argue is because I said it might not be a bad idea to put gin. And you were like, oh, well, if that's still acceptable, I you know, go really far. Yeah, and so, but I didn't put a lot of Campari in. I, I just put, because Campari's... It's it's kind of it's in the same family as bitters. It's it's pretty you know it's got a distinctive taste and aftertaste and after effects. Um, but I, I put enough in that it turned a lovely pink color. And I'm and again I'm gonna say it was a pink that even I could tell was pink. 
And um, viewers I at home it. don't know and that you're I, colorblind. And yes, I'm I'm colorblind. <laughs> and so I liked it. I I thought it was fine. I mean, I'm probably not going to make another one, but I, I thought it was passable. But so, I'm the only one who did. So for those at home, when I first decided several years ago that I should should be grown up and learn to try at least try cocktails. I reached out to Mac here for some advice, and he's... That was his first mistake. Yeah. yeah. And I continued that mistake this evening by tasting this concoction. <laughs> and I found that, mysteriously, it stuck to my tongue for, like, a good 90 seconds afterwards. La- and like Lefroig and no, eggnog? No, like No, you <laughs> see that there? We're, we're done. No, and it got stronger. The taste got stronger over that period. I don't know what happened. It was it was a bad thing. That is the magic of Campari. I would like to say that through this podcast, I have learned multiple things. Most notably, I don't like Campari. I'm on a second that. I've given it many options, and, and if it's there and I can taste it, I don't like it. If yeah. it's there small enough, I can't taste it, it's fine. If it so, just makes it pink, it's pretty. Yeah. But if I can no. taste it, it's but not let good. Let it sit over there and be pretty. Yeah. yeah. I, I like a nice bitters. I don't know what the Campari is, but it's not. No, I, so I do like... A Negroni, which is equal parts gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. And I also like a Boulevardier, where instead of the gin, you use a, a good bourbon or rye. And I like good cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> I also like good cocktails. Yeah. And they're, they're different so yeah. definitions. Okay, if we want to get into this, who's worse, the person that came up with the idea of putting Lafrog in the eggnog, or the person who no, did it? No, <laughs> I, I will own that. I destroyed a perfectly good eggnog by putting Lafrog in. There was a reason it wasn't just. Please don't knowledge. put Campari in the eggnog. <laughs> I'm not. Why are you looking at me? Oh my I'm God. not making the eggnog, and I'm not suggesting. I just saw it. where this was going. It was horrifying. <laughs> no, no. I've learned I'm not screwed with the eggnog recipe. The most I'm deviating from the eggnog recipe was substituting rye whiskey for bourbon whiskey. That's all I'm doing. Just go back to Bullet. It was perfect. Well, that's what I've always used, and it's it's. Oh, it's not. It's thirty-one. Good, that's rye. perfect. It's a yeah, bourbon, that's... but it's like barely. I snuck, just barely I a bourbon. Snuck, I snuck it. Well, I used to use. Yeah, I used to use the bullet bourbon, and then I yeah. transitioned to rye, which is not that. Anyway, so how did you fix compar- uh, Contro just, so you could drink I it? I just drank it. You drank the sweetness. I mean, the ice melted, but yeah, it was the orangey little, sweetness. Like, I would sip it and go whoa, and I'd wait several seconds till I forgot and sip it again, and eventually yeah. it was gone. I put in a couple squirts of uh, lemon, lemon juice. juice, and actually that was kind of refreshing. Lemon makes everything. It kind of made it mm-hmm. like a very sweet lemonade. And now it yeah. decreases the chances that you'll get scurvy. It, true. <laughs> yeah. Important to keep all your teeth. I w- I was concerned. <laughs> so. Crisis averted. <laughs> so the, the so, fourth cocktail. Yeah, just to sum up, we are on our fourth cocktail. Which is, is fair, not a cocktail per se. because it Well, was, neither was the Condro. But. Rick wallowing in self-pity in the middle of the night with the lights out, just knocking out a bottle of bourbon. Listening Sam there to... Trying to... Well, Sam playing the piano. Sam and, playing the and, piano. And saying, if it's December 1941 in Casablanca, what time is it in New York? And... Sam, of course, is like um, play it, Sam. Yeah, she can take it. I can take it. Which <laughs> I don't think they quite said it that way. <laughs> but yeah, he never says play it again, Sam. But no, he, he says play says it. He, he says, says play, play it. it. Yeah. If she can take it, I can. Or yeah. if she can handle it, I can. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, and then of course she walks in, and it's like, well, this isn't gonna go south, and it does. So it's it's part of the tragic love story. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually, in the end, is not tragic. No, it's tragic. Well, it's... It's tragic. I mean, it's not, but there's... If Elsa and Rick are truly in love, and she goes off with another dude, and he goes off to fight in no, a war that he didn't no, want to fight in, it's tragic. No, the thing is, she was truly in love with Victor. That's how you interpret that movie? Yeah, actually. Okay, just in uh, case you the six in the rocks. Is this movie, why I'm so. single? Yes. <laughs> yes, it, it is. <laughs> So anyway, our fourth drink is bourbon. Elijah Craig. Elijah bourbon. Craig, this this time. We've had other bourbons that are pretty good. Yeah. We like Elijah Craig. Yes, we do, because it tastes like a rye, not a bourbon. So, so. for those of us who don't know the difference between a bourbon and a rye and want to experience this 
how would you describe so the flavor difference? One is Corn mash. Over CFR twenty five something where they have the legal definition. No, no, no. CFR I know, like you can look it at up, but like as someone who's yeah. tasting it, yes. so, how would you describe the difference? Um, well, let, let's go where they start. It honestly, I, I find interesting things about alcohols is where they came from. What were mm-hmm. they made from? So bourbons are made of mostly corn. Corn mash, at yeah. least fifty-one percent corn mash. Correct. Could be almost entirely corn mash, or just barely fifty-one percent, but it's got to be mostly corn. Gotcha. And there's some other language about the aging, but let's talk about just what it's made from. Mostly corn. If you're a rye, you're made from mostly rye. Yeah. So, so whiskey, and that's the thing about whiskeys. Whiskeys are made from grains. That's what makes a whiskey yeah. a whiskey. Which or grains? Malt. Whisk, which like grain scotch. determines which one it is? Yeah. yeah. Scotches are made from malts. And I'm sure somebody out there is like, malt is a grain. I don't really know if it is or I, not. I'm assuming it is. I don't yeah. know. Um, so that doesn't make a whiskey so. a whiskey. Whereas like, you know. Honestly, I have no idea. Like your brandies no, I th- I think are it made is. from fruits and, and, and so forth. Well, that's Gins fine. But like, we're at a bar. Yeah. We've got a flight of the alcohols Lisbon in front flight. of us. Mm-hmm. No, there not the Lisbon flight. Okay. But like, you're saying, oh, hey, this is a bourbon. Hey, this is right. You when you sip them, you'll notice what the, with the bourbon, what with the rye. Typically, the bourbons are sweeter than a rye. Okay. And the and, and richer in a sense, whereas the ryes are smoother and, and I don't know that I want to say drier, but they're they don't have a sweet profile and they tend to have a little more spicy. Oh, that's interesting. Them. Well, they they can. Yeah, tend to not always, but they tend yeah. to usually usually with the bourbons you get a little more of a sweet flavor. Yeah, coming through there. Yes, there's vanilla or whatever else going on, but you tend to get a sweet. Yeah, and when you get in all like notes of caramel, is like, okay? No, I, I I just don't go that far. I'm into not it, that sophisticated. But... So besides for four cocktails is a lot for one show, and it's about average for us though. I think. Well, all right, we need to go back. And okay, to stop. Or... All right, let's move on. Um, Casablanca is a great movie. What else have we learned tonight? That primaries have made us all crazy and the Electoral College is here to stay. I, I'm going to push back on that one. I'm, I say let's tear down the system, man. Let, let's repeal. You need, a, you need a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress and three-fourths well, of state Well, if I get all my friends to go and vote at Here's the primaries, I can... Vote in the primaries. Okay. Vote, vote in the, in the primaries, primaries. Vote in local elections. Vote in general Take elections. Take every national. election seriously. Every vote in one. every election. Don't think, vote. well, this is just the primary. It's not the, you know, this is like the semifinals. I'm going to wait till the final. No, vote, vote in every election. Yeah, let's vote out the old white guys and overturn... The Electoral College by voting as, in the primaries. As an old white guy, I'd well, like to say, vote out the old white guys. Well, thank you. I've won one the, over. No, I've, <laughs> I've been on that train for I'm, I'm also going to say, though, that you're not going to be able to get rid of the Electoral College in the primaries. Yeah. Well, no, but that's the start. The start, sure. That's the start of my revolution so, that I'm planning. But, but remember, if Because I'm can, on my fourth cocktail if, and I can talk about it now. Can, that's fair. If we can get, I mean, it's actually kind of an American birthright. But if, if we can get Congress to simply increase the size of the House of Representatives to 500, which just takes a majority vote. <laughs> I like it. Simply. simply. No, well, I know it's not simple, but it's a, it, to it's increase a it to 500, than, you, than, than a you can at least make it less likely that you can have somebody win the popular vote and lose the electoral All right. Also, All of my primary voters, if you hear that, we're trying to increase the electoral college to 500. Also, let me just put this out. No, we're trying to increase the House of Representatives to 500. The oh, House of Representatives to 500. Increase the electoral college from 538 let me, let me put to 603. All right, there's a lot of numbers in there. Just <laughs> president, re-listen to this podcast when you're not you, drinking. You get a little more than half of the people that are eligible to vote to vote. Usually. If you could add ten more percent, you would radically change the outcome. Oh man, you that'd be awesome! You don't have to change electoral colleges. You don't have to change anything. Just get more people out to the vote. higher voter turnout. <sighs> How do we get more people Biden out to vote? I mean, like honestly, that it matters. Convince them that their voice. Well, no, matters. okay, wait. But look at what happened in twenty twenty because the the voter turnout in twenty sixteen was somewhere between like fifty five and say it was like fifty eight percent or so, which is kind of high. In fact. It, now that I think about it, it may not have even been that high. But voter turnout in 2020 was over 60%. That's the first time it's been over 60% since like 1964. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the higher turnout did make the difference because, because yes. yes, 
13 more million more people voted for Trump in 2020 than in 2016. But Biden got, give me a second, um, like 17 million more people than what Hillary yeah. Clinton got. I mean, he got 81 million. She got like 65 yes, million. Yes. So exactly. So more that people came more out people to voting vote made a difference. And that's what made the difference. And for those of you out there who may, you know, lean Republican and say, well, but what about, hey, if you got more voters than they did. No, and don't talk actually, to the Republicans. Leave them alone. Okay, but I'm just pointing out. Just stay though, home. You're sleepy. It's like, <laughs> but that's what happened with um, Beto O'Rourke against Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. Because the, the voter turnout, that was an off-year election for Texas. And usually we have about like 27% of the people vote. And we had over 50% of the people vote. So many more people came out and voted for Beto O'Rourke. And yes, so many more actually came out and voted for Ted Cruz. But many, but here's something. Many of those people only came out to vote for Ted Cruz and didn't finish off their ballots because in a lot of cities and a lot of local races, a lot of Republicans lost. Not all of them, but, but there were some that did that were voted out in a lot of local races where people didn't vote all the way down the ballot. So how do we get people out to vote, though? Or is that you another podcast? Seriously. I think too many, and I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not going to say young people. Too many people, no. period, don't think the vote matters, even though politicians spend billions of dollars to sway the vote. They still think their vote doesn't matter. It yeah. does. That's why they're spending the money. Well, and he, here's where it, what it comes down to. The older you are, and it, well, this is the wrong way to phrase it, but like if, if you break people down into age groups... The older the age group, the more likely they are to vote. So, kids, you got to get out and vote. There's just no two ways about it. If you want to make change, you have to actually have to make change. And the, the first way you do that is to be determined mm-hmm. to vote. And the primaries is the a good primaries, place to do every it. Every election. Every election. In the local primaries, elections, in primaries, the general election. All of them. Local elections, state vote. elections, national elections. All right, here's the voting. Here's the voting. Here's the voting. <laughs> been listening to Civics on the Rocks, a once a month podcast featuring a real engineer going by the fake name of Steve, a real history teacher going by the fake name of Mac, and a fake producer going by the real name of Ann Chminsky. That's me. The guys drop a lot of references while they talk. We've tried to document them all in order of appearance on our website at civicsontherocks.podbean.com. We're also Civics on the Rocks on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads if you want to suggest a question of the day, or cocktail recipes, or different types of media you think we should check out. Whatever. Please drop by. We may also have an account on the platform formerly known as Twitter, but it's hard to tell these days. If you didn't like our podcast, well, I doubt you're still listening, but if you are, thanks for giving it a go. We know we're not everybody's glass of iced tea. If you did like our show, please follow, review, and share. And stay tuned for our next episode next month. Until then, cheers, y'all.